Welcome back to Supreme Myths. Today is um, Tuesday, and we have just lived through another Obamacare argument in the Supreme Court. I am very happy to have as my guest Jessica Levinson, uh, who is the a professor of law at Loyola Law in Los Angeles. She's also the director of the Public Service Institute. Um, she is an expert on election law. Um, she's an expert on all things Citizens United and money in, in campaigns. So we're going to, uh, first of all, welcome, Jessica. I'm really glad you're here. Thank you. I'm so honored that you asked me. Glad to be here. My pleasure. You also have a podcast called Passing Judgment, which is, other than, other than the one you asked me to do, great. Um, and, uh, <laughs> That's not uh, true. I, I, I do great. watch it, and I think you're really good at it. And in fact, I have learned how to do this a little bit, teeny bit better watching you do it. So I appreciate that. Um, one quick light note, just before we started taping this on uh, today, Jessica said, I'm freezing in my house. And I said, in Southern California? Come on. When does it freeze in Southern I, California? I, I have, I'm also warming my hands with a hot tea. Um, I live in an old house and I'm a Southern California native. And this is kind of what you get. I mean, so for, it's like, 62 degrees in the house and oh, for yeah. us that's cold well there are a lot there are, well with climate change actually that's probably pretty cold for most of the country it was 74 in chicago a few days ago but generally thinking my sympathy for you is not great on this issue um okay i understand um we're going to talk about the election but before we do if you don't mind uh let's talk about the big obamacare case today this is the case where plaintiffs claim that the taking of the tax penalty for complying with the mandate to buy health insurance to zero somehow makes the whole law invalid. Um, what are your thoughts on this case and what are, you, what are your thoughts about the oral argument? Yeah, I mean, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on it. It's It seems to me that the individual mandate, which of course in 2012 was upheld as valid under Congress's taxation policy, that that's probably dead because if the tax is zero, then it's hard to see it. It's hard to view it as a proper exercise of your taxation authority. And there was some discussion in the oral argument, like, well, can we view it in some other way? You know, can we put it outside of the taxation um, power? And I think the answer to that is probably no. But then, as you said, when this case came up, the broader question came up, which was, well, can you take out the individual mandate from the rest of the statute? And I think, as you have said very correctly and eloquently, that the answer to that has to be, yes, you can. And it seemed to me, based on the oral arguments this morning, that there was a majority of even this current court that would say, yes, you can, in part because their jurisprudence is basically trying first don't create a huge disruption, which sometimes they do, and also try and look at Congress's intent. And if Congress wanted to say everything falls with the individual mandate, then there were words and actions that they could have taken to do that. So I, I think that's where we're going. It was, I have to tell you, Eric, on just a personal level, it was startling to hear Justice Barrett um, and not hear Justice Ginsburg. It did, I mean, I had that moment where we would have gone to her we didn't. And then at the end, because they went in order of seniority, I heard from Justice Barrett. And it's a reminder of, um, of what happened and what will happen. Um, you know, that's actually a great point, Jessica. I wasn't I was so focused on trying to figure out the tea leaves of the argument. 
I, I was at, but but an offshoot of that is the first question. I think it was the first that Justice Barrett asked. Maybe it was the second. I don't think anybody understood, and it, it was really a strange question. And it made me think. I don't know if Ginsburg ever asked a question that nobody understood. Um, they're very they're, not only are they, not only are they different politically. I, I, I've never said this before publicly, so maybe I'll create a firestorm. You have done this to me again. Um, <laughs> I just – the difference in talent between these two women is extraordinarily large, I think. And we're going to see that as the years go on. Yeah. I So I just don't know the answer to that question. I, what I know is that Justice Ginsburg was a brilliant legal scholar. And I just don't know enough about Justice Barrett. And I certainly would not want to be – and I know you're not doing this, but judged on my first question in sure. you know the first time you're on the stage. Um, and look – 99.5% of the world, at least, is not going to be as smart as Justice Ginsburg. Um, but it is true that I couldn't quite track the question. And I'm going to reserve judgment a little bit. I think I, it's clear that she is a very conservative jurist. Now, what type of questioner she is, I'm not sure yet. Well, I will say, and and then I'll just, we'll just head off to the election. I will say that I did go back yesterday and read Justice at the time, uh, Professor Barrett's book, uh, review of Randy Barnett's uh, book, Our Republican Constitution, because I wrote a review of that book as well. And when I read her review, I, I mean, it was, it was a solid review, and I actually agreed with some of it. But everything she said in that review about Justice Roberts and the two uh, Affordable Care Act cases prior to this one was gratuitous. And didn't necessarily yeah. fit with the rest of the article. And that made me very nervous about her character because I do think she was auditioning to become a federal judge. And, and I, I just I, I just find that kind of thing among law professors very troubling. That's all. You know, and what and what I had. So I'm not as well educated on that particular piece of writing as you are. I mean, what really struck me is that just her incredible adherence to not saying anything <laughs> yeah. in her confirmation hearings. Yeah. And of course, that's the name of the game since Robert Bork, right? Is that it's a win if you say nothing. It's a win if you don't give, you know, if you basically state your name, maybe your age, maybe you say if you're married and how many kids you have, but you don't really commit to anything else. But she just elevated this to such a degree. And Look, there are, I mean, as much as we're joking, there are some things that you can and should say. It's an incredibly powerful position. You're not accountable to anybody after you may, after you assume that position. And it, you know, I just, it, it really, it seems to me that she took what Roberts and Kagan did so well, and she just took it to really an extreme where, um, we didn't learn anything except that she was really, really dedicated to not providing any information. Right. And I think I agree 100 percent. And and she certainly could have said, you know, my understanding is the majority of scientists accept climate change. I'm not a scientist, but I tend to you know go with science and that that's not really my bailiwick. And she could have said that. That wouldn't have hurt her chances. That wouldn't have been she wouldn't even say that. I mean, you know why, of course, because she doesn't believe in climate change because she – we won't go there. OK. Let's talk about the election because that's <laughs> – Okay. Um, so the I election, have been killed that's... on Twitter for the last two or three days because I oh, have good. been saying Donald Trump views losing as death. 
He will do everything to stop himself from losing. There are no rules. There are no laws. There's no morality that will stop him. I think Bill Barr is close to that. I think McConnell is close to that. McConnell is more complicated because of his Senate. And the American people should be prepared for all kinds of shenanigans inside of court, outside of court, and maybe even violence. And people are like, don't give any weight to these things. I'm like, I'm not giving weight to them. I'm just describing them. Do you think I'm crazy? <laughs> that, I, even I will not fall for that particular <laughs> question. No, do I think you're crazy? No. I mean, so there's a lot of there there in the sense that I think we would agree that President Trump is not going to go quietly and that Attorney General Barr is now paving the way for a sham investigation into non-existent voter fraud. And um, the place where maybe I'm a little more hopeful, which is a weird place for me because I'm (laughs) typically the pessimist in the room. So thank you for allowing me to fulfill this role is that I at a certain point, I think Mitch McConnell is going to say, thanks for all your time. I got the judiciary. I got the Supreme Court. We got some tax cuts. We really went a pretty far way in dismantling the administrative state. And there's the door. Because I don't think he really enjoys dealing with President Trump. I think he was just a means to an end. And for me, the tipping point really will be you know, when that list of Republican elected officials that have said, congratulations, President-elect Biden. When that list grows, then I will say, like, Eric, I'm not with you. But if the list stays pretty thin and Mitch McConnell says, well, you know, we've always had these arguments in court, then I get worried. And I mean, as, as you know, there's two flavors of legal arguments here. They're the ones that we've had for a long time. I'd like my recount in Wisconsin. Sure. I'd like my recount in Georgia. Okay. You know, you're within the standards. That's typical. Right. But then there's the, then there are the ones where the Republicans really need to peel away and say, this is nonsense. And that's, you know, the, there's voter fraud, even though in the court filings, because none of the attorneys want to be sanctioned, they don't actually say exactly that. Or we didn't have meaningful access to watch the, um, people who are tabulating the votes or, um, you know, you have to stop counting. You have to start counting the kind of the ones where I think there are zero and 10 now in terms of their filings. That to me, um, that's going to be the tipping point. If we see the Republican establishment say you're done, then I am not with you. If the Republican establishment really stays with him, then I get worried. Well, a couple of late breaking items uh, that you, you might not have said. I know you had a very busy morning. Um, uh, just an hour ago, Sec- Secretary of State Pompeo said to a room full of people that there will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. And I, I watched. I, I wait. I watched it three times. I don't think he was kidding. So. That's okay. This the last thing you said is the scariest thing, right? That he's not kidding, because it seems to me that so far it's been like, let's find a way to have President Trump have a comfortable, soft landing. Let's all give him the lawsuits and tell him we tried our best and then we'll allow him to grumble his way out the door. But if Pompeo is saying we think there's going to be a transition to a second Trump administration, I mean, that is deeply troubling. And I don't, I mean, that's where it's like, 
it's just not based in reality. I mean, there is no court case that could flip this. It's not based on one state, and it's not based on one case. Sorry. No, no, no. I was, I was, um, I was going to say two things. Hopefully, by the time we're done with this taping, this this will come out sometime Thursday or Friday. Pompeo will have said he was joking. I'm, I'm hoping that happens before. It may not. But more importantly, when, so on my very nerdy con law list that I belong to, um, everybody is saying what you just said. Uh, uh, election law experts like Justin Levitt and others, um, uh, there's no one case that can – this is not Bush versus Gore where it's all focused on one case. I, I'm not – I wish I were 100 percent sure that was true. I, I'm not and here's why. And it comes down to paragraph 14 of the 120-page complaint that was filed yesterday in Pennsylvania. And I yeah. tweeted this out, and, and, and I just want to tell the world my bona fides here, and then, I'll, and then I'll say it, and then I'll ask you about it. I was the only law professor. In fact, there's a law review article saying I was the only law professor. I was the only liberal law professor in the country who said the broccoli argument in the first Affordable Care Act case is ridiculous and absurd, and the court is likely to buy it. So, so, so that's my bona fides here. This paragraph says, in context, we had a pandemic, and of course we did. There was chaos and confusion. There was. That's fair. And two different types of voting were allowed. In-person voting with a lot of protections and countersignings and, and checking the computers and mail-in ballot balloting that, according to the complaint, and I don't know the answer, didn't have any of those protections. And therefore, we had two-tier systems of voting. That's starting to sound like the argument in Bush versus Gore a little bit. And that scares me a lot because that's a national argument. Because that was true in Georgia. That was true in Nevada. That was true in Arizona. That the mail-in ballots and the, and, and the drop-off ballots and all of that, you know, was a whole new ball game compared to previous elections. Tell me I'm paranoid and I'm, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm a scaredy cat and I shouldn't be worried. Um, I'm not going to say any of that. So, well, first of all, I would never tell anyone not to be worried in this particular situation. And you didn't have to prove your bona fides to me. I certainly know. <laughs> you know, it, in terms of um, the argument there, there's, yeah, God, what was it last night? It's like 105 pages. And there's basically the two buckets of arguments. And the first is um, we didn't have meaningful access to watch poll workers. And then they kind of say, well, we had access, but, and it's this half-hearted, but it wasn't really meaningful. And I think we can kind of put that yes. to the side and focus on what you've talked about, which is this idea that there's a two-tiered system. And then it seemed to me that the deeper argument under the two-tiered system was also that uh, the Democratic Elections Board said to um, the people who got their vote by mail ballots in early, you have the ability to cure and that they didn't do that for everybody. But of course, you can't do that for everybody because <laughs> you can only do it based on timing and where you're situated. And so that seemed to me to kind of unravel into an argument of you were just too damn efficient at your job. Um, again, reading it kind of too quickly at night. But your your point about the kind of equal protection, you didn't treat you know these two classes of voters the same way. So I don't have the same fear right now, although as we're talking, it's rising. My adrenaline <laughs> is rising. I do that to people, Jessica. I don't mean to. Yeah, no, that's okay. Um, <laughs> so I think it would fundamentally undermine 
every state's ability to have vote by mail if you really take it to its logical conclusion, which is, of course, there are different mechanisms that we allow people to vote. So in California, you probably read that there was all of this um, news about the GOP having unofficial drop boxes and whether or not those were permissible. But it seems to me that we do allow vote in-person voting by mail, drop boxes, early polling places, and that there are different checks and different procedures and different requirements on all of those different mechanisms. And so maybe I'm not understanding the nuance of the argument, but it seems to me that it would just, the conclusion would have to be that everybody has to vote in the same way. And um, and that can't be the case. Well, so... so I agree with you legally 100%. Um, as you know, I don't really view these issues politically. I mean, legally, I view them politically. Um, and the reality is Bush versus Gore said it was for one day only because I think right. – I, I, even though it turns out Justice Kavanaugh doesn't think so because he relied on Bush versus Gore substantively two weeks ago for the first time any justice has ever relied on Bush versus Gore. That scared me. For a substantive proposition. Um, but I, I guess my question to you is, and maybe I, I, I don't know the answer to this, and no worries if you don't either. It's a hard question. I thought that the equal protection argument in Bush versus Gore, that different Florida counties diff, treated different treated ballots differently, created an equal protection problem. When that argument was made, it was true in almost every state. I mean, most states, the counties. So, so what they basically said was the whole country is doing it wrong. <laughs> and I don't yeah, think they'll do that this time, but it has nothing to do with law. That's interesting. I haven't taught Bush versus Gore in a while. So I have to say, I just don't, I, all I remember thinking is, how am I going to teach this case and tell my students that we're supposed to rely on the Supreme Court <laughs> as creating precedent and then they keep saying over and over again, don't rely on us. And then how freaking wild was it that Justice Kavanaugh is like, oh, and I just want to direct you to Bush versus Gore. Yes. Because even though they told us, don't ever look, don't under, don't ever open this door because it's scary back there. Yes. Um, so would the Florida argument taken to its logical extreme have essentially said to every state, because it's a patchwork in every state, what you're doing is not OK? Um that's a great point, and I have to kind of, I have to beg a time to think about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's. By the way, I, I do that all the time when I'm interviewed, and there's nothing wrong with that. And the media doesn't like it, but sometimes that's what the answer has to be. It has to be. I need more time to think about it. I, I think that's a perfectly fair answer to any question. Um, you have written enormously well on Citizens United and money in politics um, and and that whole issue. So I, I have a couple questions about that with this election. I keep reading that the Democrats outspent Republicans every you know by huge amounts. And I guess maybe six million or whatever it is, five million, four million popular votes later. But in the Electoral College didn't seem, you know, we're gonna squeak I think we're gonna squeak by. I don't think I think Georgia is going to be very close at the end. So, I, But we're going to squeak by. So, so can you tell us how much harm Citizens United really did if money often doesn't lead to victory? 
So that's a great question. I don't think that um, just because money doesn't lead to victory means that there's no harm. I think that those are two entirely different questions. And so I think money dictates, and and as I've said, Citizens United is a big and I think bad decision, but it's not the original sin. Buckley versus Vallejo, a 1976 decision where the Supreme Court basically says, Money's either speech or speechy. So whenever you want to restrict contributions or expenditures, you have to do that under the First Amendment. I think that's the problem. And then everything just kind of builds on that original problem. And sometimes the court kind of tries to make it okay. And then by about 2010, the court's like, screw it, you know, screw it. Money is speech, and it doesn't matter who the identity of the speaker is. It doesn't matter if it's you or me, or if it doesn't matter if it's GE. We're going to treat all speakers the same. So in terms of the harm that Citizens United has done, I would say I don't evaluate it just in terms of does it mean that somebody wins? I would evaluate it in terms more of who runs in the first place? You know, what are the issues that are decided? What are the conversations that voters hear So, you know, there's this idea that corporations can not just kind of dictate maybe in both implicit and direct ways who's going to be a viable candidate because they kind of explain, you know, we have a lot of money to spend on these issues, but then they kind of force a discussion of certain issues. And then they also can flood the marketplace. So there's only so much time that we can spend looking at political ads and um, and it crowds out other speech. So my argument is that's actually not good for diversity of viewpoints, and it actually doesn't help the First Amendment. So I would say all of my all of those concerns, at least, are separate and apart from that the money didn't make a difference. You know, the money. Um, I think that I remember the first time I taught campaign finance, I was. I think 28 or 29, it was like 2009. And I'm and everybody can very quickly now figure out that I'm 40, which is fine. And, um, and I remember saying, this is going to be different in a decade because you are all going to start getting your campaign information in a different way. And this is really true now, particularly when I talk to undergrads. And so the money, I think, is going to shift to places that may or may not be as expensive. And so we have to look now to see once the younger bracket ages into being really a like predictable voting block, where are they getting their campaign information? And that I think is the only way we're going to reduce the influence of money. That's a great point about the younger generation, I think. Um, on On this question, let me relate two experiences and get your reaction to them or two conversations I've had. One was with Jason Carter, who ran Jimmy Carter's grandson, who ran for governor here um, whenever he ran for governor, 2014, uh, whatever year it was. I, by the way, I have two decades on you, so my memory is going. Um, and, my, and I'm not – I work for the state of Georgia. But my wife supported Jason Carter and, and had fundraisers for him. And, and he and I once had a conversation where he basically said his main constituency was not the people but like – rich people in New York and the Democratic Party without whom he won't – if he doesn't convince them he can win, he won't get money. And if he won't get money, he can't win. And he was really lamenting that he would have loved to have had that election as with the, with the people of Georgia. 
but he said he spent his, uh, he had to spend a lot of time outside of Georgia. I assume that's true in a lot of states. That's really sad, right? I think that's true in every city, county, state, okay. and on the federal level. I'm, I was just last night texting with a, I'll just say, elected official. And I mean, it wasn't weird. We were talking about campaign finance, and he was talking about which seat he would like to be up for. And he was saying essentially a very similar thing, which is that, but that seat is really expensive. And, you know, I don't know that I can get the early money to be viable. And it was a conversation completely different from, do I have the best ideas? Can I get to the voters? So, yes, I mean, money makes a difference, like from before the starting gate, right? It's who actually you know, walks onto the field and says, I'm going to start this race because some people already are like, I don't think I can run. And there's some, the statistic is, you know, forever changing because it depends on how competitive your seat is and if it's an open seat. But I think for the second half of the terms of members of Congress, a lot of them are spending close to 40% of their time fundraising. And I mean, that's just extraordinary. And I don't blame our elected officials. This is the system we created. I mean, there's nothing like if you want to if you want to try and dismantle the system, if you want to try and reform, you have to first win under the status quo. But yeah, it's um, it's well, deeply dispiriting. When, when, and, when, when you say we created, um, this is a point I try to make all the time. And most law professors, you won't, I don't think, but most law professors dismiss me out of hand. We didn't create it. The Supreme Court created it. And the reason I make that point is all over the world in Western democracies, there are all kinds of limits on what on how elections are run, what candidates can do. My understanding is in England, there are no TV ads 30 days or 60 days or maybe ever prior to the election. Most Western democracies have found a way to make this not quite as terrible. What's stopping us here is not the people, I don't think. Every poll shows, you know, people, it's five of nine or now six of nine or whatever Supreme Court justices. And I think that's an important point to make. You and I didn't choose this. The Supreme Court chose this. You're exactly right. I shouldn't be so general with it's our system or we created the system. We didn't. I mean, again, it was created by this, I think, kind of horrible patchwork per curiam opinion in 1976. And it there was such an easier path, right? You can say, I don't know how much in the weeds you want me to get into, but you can still say money is speechy, it's expressive, and put it under like a time, place, and manner rubric. Agreed. Right? And and then we're done. And then we look like the rest of Western democracies. And I mean, imagine how different it would be if candidates had to just spend like a lot, but that they had a limit. And so it wasn't this endless fundraising treadmill. It wasn't all based on who's a good fundraiser. And think about in the beginning, I mean, we can have a conversation about whether or not polling's dead, but our proxy for viability is fundraising. Yes. And that, and being, I try and do this with my students the first day of class. What does it take to be a good fundraiser? What does it take to be a good fill in the blank? And they're in that Venn diagram, there's overlap, but they don't map directly (laughs) onto each other. It's a great way of putting it. The, the, the second story I was going to relate, directly relevant to what you were saying, Pete Dominic, who a, a, used to be a serious XM radio host, now is a podcast, uh, he once had a member of Congress on, and I'm not going to remember who it was, who basically said, in the House, 
who said that he showed up his first day and he got a visit from the party leaders, or some of them, who said, hi, welcome. Starting tomorrow, 60% of your time, not 40, 60, is going to be spent raising money. And if you don't do that starting tomorrow, you won't be, you know, you will, A, you won't get plum assignments, and B, you won't combat. I mean, all, all these threats and everything. And he was like, I just want to be part of government. Like, I want to work for the government, but I have to spend 60% of my time fundraising. I'm not a fundraiser. But then he said on the show, but then he realized he had to do that. And that, it's just terrible. I mean, it makes it. Well, you know, and people say like, oh, well, it means you get to talk to constituents. First of all, it's not only constituents that give and it's only a small slice. I mean, one of the things that I do in my um, when I give speeches about campaign finances, I say, like, what percentage of the public do you think give two hundred dollars or more? And everybody's like 20 percent, 15 percent. And I think that the answer for the last election cycle was something like. Point five, Right. And people are just stunned. And there's nothing wrong with that group. I mean, they have money and they want to spend money. And the Supreme Court has allowed them to do that. Um, but it means that we're heavily responsive to the people who can um, give our elected officials their jobs, essentially, or allow them to at least competitively run for those jobs, I should say. Right. And so it's not healthy to have this donor class with such outsized influence. And, you know, again, it, it really is, uh, this is back to, I mean, your writing is, um, you know, is the Supreme Court is not a court and originalism is faith. And, um, you know, it's back to all of the problems of the Supreme Court and that they wouldn't just say, okay, this is nuts and not workable. Right. Like, let's it, go back. I think you're right in pointing to a case called Buckley versus Vallejo, which was the first time the court made this distinction between contributions and expenditures. But the case that really – so I, I agree with you that started the disaster. But the case that I can't get my arms around and, and where your, your um, discussion that money can be speechy or can lead to speech, but it's not the same as speech, is the McCutcheon case. So just to oversimplify it, a guy in Alabama wants to write a check to a politician in California – and the guy in Alabama is not speaking, he is not talking, he is not communicating, he is literally taking his pen and writing a check, or Venmo, or whatever he did. This is before Venmo, so he's writing a check to a politician in California. Now, I'm not suggesting that's a totally unprotected act, but it's not pure, it's not close. How is writing a check to spe- speech? If he was writing a check to Exxon, would that be speech? I mean, I, you know, I don't think so, right? Well, I mean, you're right. And it will it enables somebody else potentially to have the you know ability to speak. Right. But it's clearly not pure speech. I mean, me buying a marker will allow me to write a sign. But when I pay staples, that's right. not speech. Right. I'm buying the marker. Um, you know, I've, t- I've not for a long time, but um, a couple of times I was on panels with uh, Sean McCutcheon. He actually is a nice I don't mean actually, like, he's a nice person. He just really, I think, was a great test case. And I think that, um, you know, the re- Republican establishment essentially said to him, you have this money, we have this law, let's <laughs> let's go to court. <laughs> and um, the th- only sad thing, and this is just more of a comment on how much worse things have gotten, he said to me a couple of times, like, think, Thank you for being so nice about this, because I clearly thought that his perspective was wrong. But 
that's a hard place to be when somebody has to thank yeah. you for being, you know, yeah. baseline decent. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that 100%. I don't, you know, um, when in 2016, I was somewhat optimistic that we could cut back on some of this craziness before Hillary lost. And now I think we're stuck with this for a long time. Um, Judge Posner, retired Judge Posner, wrote a piece in Slate, of all places, where he said that Justice Robert. I'm paraphrasing. But what he basically said was Roberts was either stupid or lying uh, in, in, in this context. The idea that there's only quid pro quo corruption, that that's the only kind oh, yeah. of legitimate interest that the government has in elections, ignores what really happens on the ground. Of course, Posner was famous for caring about what happens on the ground. Um, but he said, of course, there is corruption beyond quid pro quo corruption. It's not a close call. We all know this. Can you, do you agree with that? And, can you, and we only have like two minutes, like five minutes left. But can you elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. So the problem, of course, just to take a step back for a second, is that the Supreme Court says the only reason you can limit contributions, uh, the only reason you can limit money in politics is to try and prevent corruption or the appearance of corruption. So now all of a sudden, it really matters what the definition of corruption is. And the court kind of during certain times, it's pretty broad and it's a little bit amorphous. And frankly, it maybe doesn't make total sense that we're trying to shoehorn these concepts into corruption. But the best definition of corruption, I think, is that includes some sort of preferential access, some sort of um, preferential treatment. And the court in Citizens United, one of the most important things it did is it says corruption is really narrow. It's literally just this for that. So it's not ingratiation. It's not access. It's not influence. It's not any of the things that we would think about in common parlance as corrupting our system. And so by doing that, they eliminate all of these laws that would seek to prevent other things right. that I think we should prevent and that are bad. And it, it's just nuts to me to think that, you know, the American public, when they look at the amount of money that's being spent, that there's no way that that could lead to quote unquote corruption <laughs> because it can't be quid pro quo. And what the, and as you know, what the Citizens United Court says is, and if you spend money independent of a candidate, meaning you didn't coordinate on the message of the communication, that it by law cannot be corrupting. So you decide to run for city council let's say I'm a trust fund kid, I spend $25 million on an independent expenditure. By law, there's no way that I could corrupt you. And that's insane. You know, it's right. It's just not, it's not sensical to me. And yeah, it's, it's not a word. No, no, and that, and, and that's pretty much what Posner said. And we don't even have to get into the idea that anyone, anyone, in 1789 or 1868, whichever date yeah. you pick, would have thought that the legislature can't take into consideration kind of slightly less than actual corruption interests when regulating money, not speech, money in politics. I mean, the idea that Scalia and Thomas would go along with all of that in Citizens United and McCutcheon is, you know, is originalism as hypocrisy, not faith, but but hypocrisy. I know you have to go. I wish I could talk to you for another 30 minutes. Um, Jessica, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Oh, I had a great time. I'm just sorry that my 
schedule is always is like this, but um, I'm any anytime you want a snippet of time, happy Thanks. to do it. It was really a pleasure. Well, I didn't say at the beginning, and I should have, that one of the reasons your schedule is like this is because you are doing, as far as I can tell, about 15 TV shows a day, locally, <laughs> nationally, internationally, um, all over the place. And um, congratulations on that. You're, you're a really important voice. And I listen to you, but more importantly, the media listens to you. And I really appreciate your perspective on these topics. I really do. That's nice of you to say. I will um, guarantee you that this will be the most fun I have all day. That's for sure. (laughs) Uh, Me too. Me too. Thanks, Jessica. Me too. Thanks, Jessica. Take care.